Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. The question this morning out of James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 is this. Is it possible, is it possible for a Christian to live like an atheist? That's the question out of James 4, verses 13 to 17. And I don't, I don't mean is it possible that one of you who is a Christian, uh, now you're going to post on all your social media arguments about atheism and how God doesn't exist. And I don't mean that like one of you who is a Christian is now, as soon as this service is over, you're going to declare that uh, right and wrong are arbitrary human categories and now you can do whatever you want to do because God doesn't exist. I don't mean it like that. What I mean is, is it possible for you to get up early on Sunday and come to church, and have a decent time at church, but then live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, like God isn't really involved in your life? The answer to that question is yes, and the proof that the answer to that question is yes is actually the way that some of you live. I mean, it just is. This is the question that James is asking in verses 13 through 17 of James chapter 4. He's targeting the sort of person who professes and says that God is important, but who makes plans with time and money and speech and gladness and heartache and all the rest of it as if God isn't really involved. The first two words are come now in verse 13. And those are the same two words in chapter 5, verse 1. We could translate them now listen or come now. And in both paragraphs, in 13 to 17, James is addressing successful people who think their plans are what really makes the world go round. And then in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, James is addressing wealthy people who think that in their wealth they have everything they need. And he says to both of them, hey, come now, listen up. This story does not have the beginning and middle and end that you think it does. Something else is going on. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. As we read this text, we want to ask two questions of the text, and we want to answer both of these questions out of the text. Because agree with me, we aren't here to think our own thoughts and write our own stories. We are here to get God's story, God's word, and God's inerrant and true thoughts. So let's ask these questions right out of the text. Question number one, what does this text say about God? What does it say about God? Well, Permit us to drift upwards out of our paragraph to the preceding paragraph. It says many important things about God. Verse 7, it says God's the one to whom we should submit. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Verse 8, it says God is one to whom we can draw near, and God may draw near to us. Isn't that something? It says that God is a, a person, so to speak, and we can have a relationship where we know that we're near to him, or we could have a distance where we know that we're far from him. That's significant. Verse 10 says, God is the one before whom we should humble ourselves, before whom we should humble ourselves. But it also says in verse 10 that God, this is significant, will exalt us. So God, as it were, responds to our humility. He's that involved in our attitudes. When he sees an attitude of pride in us, he does one thing. When he sees an attitude of humility in us, he does another thing. That's interesting that a sovereign, in-control God would respond differently like that. Verses 11 and 12 say that God is the one lawgiver, the one judge, and then it says significantly in verse 12 that God is able to save, but also that God is the only one who is able to destroy. Then in our text, verses 13 to 17, it says that God has a will. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And it says that God's the one who allows our plans to prosper or God is the one who allows our plans to miserably fail. God's the one who does that, though they are our plans and our efforts. How does that work? If that's the first question, what does this text say about God? You probably already know the second question that we're going to answer right out of the text, which is, what does this text say about UFOs? No. Well... <laughs> <laughs> what does this text say about, uh, about us? That's, those are two questions we ask. What does it say about God? What does it say about us? What does this say about us? Well, verse 13 says that we are people who say things. I know that sounds pretty obvious, but we are people who have an imagination about the future, and then we talk about, we verbalize how we are going to make that imagination about the future work. We have a vision. We have a plan. We have a hope. And we say, this is what we're going to do. That's what it says about us, that we're people who say this or that or the other thing. And yet verse 14 says, we are people who do not know many things. Watch. Two columns. I'm talking about you. You have to fill these two columns out. Two columns. One, things you know. Two, second column, things you don't know. Please agree with me, which of those common col columns is weightier? There are so many more things that we don't know. The number of things we know is a paltry sum. We are people who make plans because we think we know things but we are people who don't know so many more things than we do know. Well, we dealt with this, or I dealt with this chapter, uh, let's see, probably the week before Palm Sunday. So uh, I'm not gonna repeat what we said in that sermon. That was, more of a, that was a kind of a phrase by phrase through this text, and you can catch that if you missed it. This morning, I wanna treat this more as a thematic or a theological understanding of God's providence God's sovereignty and our response to God's will. The summary is that it's not necessarily wrong to make plans, 
But what makes making plans wrong is when we make the plans prayerlessly and we make the plans presumptuously and we make the plans atheistically. When we live like an atheist, like God isn't involved in all of the little details, his personal, intimate involvement in our attitudes and our actions and our plans and our fears and our hopes. When it comes down to rebuking us, what is exactly what it says is wrong with us? It says, we make plans, we say we're going to do this or that, but what's the specific rebuke in verse 14? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It, it says two things about us. One, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We have no idea what the consequences of our actions or other people's actions will be. So we are uncertain about many things. That's the first thing. We, we don't know. We're uncertain about many things. But the second thing it says is, if there's one thing you can be certain about is that your life is shorter and probably less significant than you think it is. Your life is a mist. Your life is a mist. You can be certain that your life is short. And from that correction, it fills in the proper way to respond to God's providence and God's sovereignty and God's will. The proper perspective is always to be humble and never to be arrogant. The proper perspective presumes not that I'm in control, but that God is. The proper perspective, frankly, is the one I have such a hard time with. Because when I make plans, I am here to tell you, my plans are so good. And every single one of you needs to get in line with my plans for my glory and your good. I mean, that's, that's, that's how we treat life. And it's so difficult to make plans, but then to humbly submit and say, there are things I don't know, and God, if these plans aren't what you want to accomplish, give me a humble rather than an arrogant response to that. The proper perspective is that my plans don't guide the world, but God's plan does. So what he says in verse 15 is, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And if, if you read, I like the way the ESV puts the word order there. If the Lord wills, we will live. You can put a full stop after that. If the Lord wills, we will live. In order to accomplish your plans, I think you have to be breathing and have brain waves. You have to live. And this literally says, if the Lord wills, you will stay alive and have brainwaves and a beating heart so that maybe or maybe not you can or can't fulfill your plans. But the first thing is you being alert to actually being able to respond to the alarm clock tomorrow morning is not in your hands but is in the hands of Almighty God. You don't sustain your own life. I, don't, I mean, I've talked to, you know, I, I, there's no reason to get all wrapped up around the axle. Am I going to get the vaccine or not? We can make wise health decisions, but we Christians do not live atheistically as if what we do or don't do with our bodies or with our health care is the be-all, end-all of everything. We don't live that way. Our lives are in the hands of God. It doesn't mean we're unwise, but it means we're unafraid. And it means that we humbly submit to God. So when he says, if the Lord wills, we will live, he's saying the flip side of that, which, I don't know, does this disturb you? 
when he says if the Lord wills, we will live, what he's saying is there are times when the Lord does not will that someone continue to live. Do you find that unsettling? Is that a fact that bothers you? It is a fact. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39. We use Psalm 139 as a comfort that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that we're stitched together by God in wisdom in our mother's womb. It's a very pro-life passage, and it is all of that. But did you know that Psalm 139 verse 16 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every single one of the days of my life before there was yet one of them. The duration and the last moment of my life is written by God in his book, not by me and my plans. Does that unsettle you? You know, one of the reasons that we need to open God's word every day and one of the reasons that we have got to be with God's people in church at least one day out of seven is because we all tend to live like I'm the judge and God's on trial. Am I happy with what God's doing or not? And we need to get ourselves in his book and get ourselves to his house of worship because we need to recognize we are the ones who are being inspected and on trial and God is the controlling sovereign judge. We are clay. He is potter. Our position judging and evaluating God I read an old Anglican sermon about the providence of God this week and the, the preacher said something like, when it, when it comes to us evaluating God's power and God's providence, that makes about as much sense as a tumbleweed evaluating the power of the tornado. God is God. This is a correction that... that fills in what our personal response to God ought to be. He's the one who controls life. And if life is the biggest thing, what's the smallest thing? I don't have one in my pocket. The smallest thing is the toss of a coin. And you know, the Bible says God's in control of that too. Proverbs 16 and verse 33, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 33. From the casting of lots to the, to the fulfillment of my business plans to whether or not I'm going to die in a hospital 48 hours from now. That's all in the hands of God. From a game of Yahtzee to a sparrow falling to the lilies of the field or the tulips up your yard yet? Mine are late this year. To every flower of the field to how long your life is going to be. God's in control of all of that. We, sh we, we would call it the exhaustive and meticulous sovereignty of God. 
God is not only sovereign in some exhaustive cosmic sense, God is also sovereign in a very intimate, meticulous sense. Every, every time you put the dice in the Yahtzee thing and throw them across the table. In uh, his, his fine book on God's providence, theologian Bruce Ware has a couple of chapters that, that he calls the spectrum texts, where it's from death to life, from the, the casting of a lot to the, to the raising up or the humiliation of a kingdom. God is sovereign over that whole spectrum. So to treat this a little more theologically and thematically than verse by verse, a couple of definitions of God's providence. The first one is a short one from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer refers to God's providence as God's purposeful, personal management. God's purposeful, personal management with a total hands-on control. God is completely in charge of this world. And I like how he ends his brief definition. God's hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. It's purposeful and it's personal. Theologian Bruce Ware, I studied under him when I worked on my doctorate down at Southern Theological. Uh, His definition of God's providence is this. God continually oversees and directs all things pertaining to the created order. God continually oversees and directs all things pertaining to the created order in such a way that two things happen. Number one, he preserves in existence and provides for the creation he has brought into being. So he provides and preserves the creation he's brought into being. And secondly, he governs and reigns supremely over the entirety of the whole creation order. He governs over the entirety of the whole creation order in order that he may fulfill his purpose in and through it. In order that he may fulfill his purpose in and through it. That's a fine definition by Bruce Ware. So to say, verse 15, instead of living like an atheist, to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Beloved, it is not a religious cliche. It is not some sort of mystical mumbo jumbo. To say that is to live theistically rather than atheistically. Whether you verbalize that with your mouth or you say it in the thoughts of your heart, to say that or to think that in your heart is nothing less than practicing the presence and providence of God on every day of your life, on every decision that you make. It's to be aware of his involvement. It's to be aware of his nearness. It's to be aware of his meticulous control. It's to, it's to communicate to him, to say, if the Lord wills, is to communicate verbally that you know that he's listening and that he's near and that he cares. So it's nothing less than, a, than the sweetness of a relationship with a heavenly father. And so, uh, you know, what James is arguing for, what I'm arguing for is, a, is a, not an opinion, but a conviction that you depend on moment by moment. It's the difference between middle school, high school aged Spencer who slept through every trigonometry and algebra class that there was. It's the difference between that and like when they were designing, when the engineers and architects were designing our roof, 
like the pitch, the angles, the lines. They were applying those things to every choice, to everything that they built. I, I sure hope we all know the difference between a sort of an I went to church and I know something about God. And actually, every time I write, every time I cry, every time I use my phone, I am aware that God is near and that he's providing and that he has a purpose and that he has a will. Oh, I want you to live that way. Is it really important to live that way? Hey, I would say so, verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. How important is it to practice the providence of God? It, I would say, I would dare say something is important if the Holy Spirit says not doing that thing is evil. Evil. And that's what he says here. It's that big of a deal. Sometimes we're arrogant. We just make our plans and we don't care. We don't want any help from anybody. We just do our thing. You know, this is... The text doesn't treat this, but I, I would treat this just because it's such a key application out of the text. Arrogance just makes my plans, doesn't depend on anybody, does what I want to do. We tend to think that arrogance is arrogance and anxiety, anxiety is something else altogether. But the more people I counsel with the Bible, the more convinced I've become that arrogant, that Anxiety is the twin of arrogance. If arrogance is to say, I am the captain of my fate and I'm going to do whatever I want, and anxiety is to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't have any control and I'm afraid and worried about everything, both are to defy that God is God. Is it or is it not true that he has the whole world in his hands? I mean the whole world. All the babies and the mamas and the grandmas and the orangutans and the giraffes. Is it or is it not true that he has the whole world in his hands? To, to authentically believe that is to be delivered from soul-shivering anxiety because God has my days in his hands. Don't boast. And don't shrink away from boasting into some no man's land of anxiety because both would be to defy the presence and the providence of God and his power. Instead of fearing and instead of being anxious and instead of an arrogance, we celebrate God's glorious sovereignty. This is our God. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 103, verse 19. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the sea and under the sea. Psalm 135, verse 6. And then this, this powerhouse of a chapter, Isaiah 46. God says a lot there. God says in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I am God and I am the only one who declares the end 
from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not yet been done. And I say, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. That's our God, Isaiah 46. So to understand these sort of theological categories, sovereignty then is that God is the one and only one who is in complete control of all things. God is ultimately and completely in control of all things. That's his sovereignty, who he is, his wonderful attribute of sovereignty. God's providence then underneath that explains and shows us how God's control over all things in the world works itself out personally, purposefully, meticulously, intimately, detail after detail. How he works, his glorious sovereign will, is through his providence. And as J.I. Packer said, his hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. In his providence, from the very etymology of the word, he provides, he preserves, he, he preserves life, he sustains life. The psalmist says he opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. How does God do this? How does God's providence work? And especially the question is, we're not going to go deep into this this morning. The question is, well, you know, if, if, if God does have all the days of my life written in his book, well, then why should I get the vaccine? Or if God does have his purposes, well, how does that work with, you know, our will and our decisions? How does God do this? I'm not going to go into that deep this morning, but it has been gone into deep for, you know, well over a thousand years by Christians like us, and it, that question has been well answered. Almost all of the great old confessions of the faith, when it comes to explaining or explicating God's sovereignty and God's providence, almost every single one of those great old confessions puts it somehow like this. They use this great word, superintends. God superintends all secondary causes so as to guarantee the ultimate fulfillment of his will in and through those secondary causes. God superintends. That's that great old word from the confessions. All secondary causes. To, to fulfill his purpose through those secondary causes without violating the will of the creature or the reality of those secondary causes without violating the will of the creature or those secondary causes. You say, well, I don't understand. What is a secondary cause? I am. And so are you. Every creature, um, a rock, not sure that's a secondary cause, but every creature that God has given volition, a will, the ability to make choices, that's a secondary cause. So I am, the angels are, Right? Some of the angels use their, their causality, their will, to rebel against God. And some of them didn't. Uh, I guess there's, there's a sense in which you could call secondary causes like uh, weather patterns or gravity or things like that. In, in most of the old confessions of the faith, what they mean is uh, creatures who have their own will. And God superintends all secondary causes so that he ultimately fulfills his purpose in and through them without violating the will or the reality of those secondary causes. You know, even if you don't know any of that terminology, if one time you read through Genesis and you read the story of Joseph, you know what that is. Genesis 50, verse 20. 
When Joseph says to his brothers who are a secondary cause, an evil secondary cause in this case, he says to his brothers simply exactly this, you meant it for evil, but God meant, old confessional word, superintended it for good. Or you heard it in the very first sermon in the book of Acts. When Peter says to the crowd who had crucified our Lord, he says to them in Acts 2 and verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God had this purpose for Jesus to die and that for it to be impossible for the grave to hold Jesus. And God fulfilled that purpose through the volition and the evil will of the crowd who, who, who murmured and cried out for the blood of the Son of God. This is how it works. It, it, much of it admittedly is still a mystery, but we accept it. Except when we don't. All kinds of people argue about the sovereignty of God, and I, I like arguing just as much as anybody else, but I'd, if I'm in an argument, I'd rather be on the side of the argument where God is bigger than the side of the argument where God's smaller. I don't know about you, but I, I want to pick the winning side. God really is that big. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that there's no doctrine that man hates as much as the sovereignty of God. I don't know if I'm as pessimistic as old Charles Spurgeon, but this is what he said. Old English preacher Spurgeon. No doctrine is more hated by worldlings. There is no truth of which worldlings have made such a football as the... There is no truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous doctrine of the sovereignty of our infinite Jehovah. It seems that men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. That's what Spurgeon said. Church, you, you have got to be in your Bible every day and you have got to gather with the people of God at least one day out of seven because, because otherwise we end up living like our thoughts and our plans are the judgment and then we subject whether we like or don't like what God is or isn't doing based on our thoughts and our plans. And we have got to get back to the only form of sanity, which is that God and God alone is the judge of the universe. And I am on trial. Am I evil and arrogant or am I humble and faithful? We, we subject God to our to our opinion about how our plans should or shouldn't go or to our rationality. And beloved, we need to be in the word of God and we need to gather with the people of God because we actually need to get to the point where we recognize, oh God, what I call rationality should be judged by you and your word. Only God judges all things. James' target here is not a, a hard refusal against God's sovereignty, but an arrogant forgetfulness of it, which amounts to the same thing. Because we all go through life writing our own story. We, 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 we write our own story of what our plans are and what has happened to us and why we are the way we are. 
And beloved, you need to open up the word of God and you need to be with God's people at least one day out of seven so that the Holy Spirit of God can take a big, fat, black Sharpie to the story that you're writing about yourself. We, we need our illusions shattered. If you're like, you know, Invictus, I am the captain of my fate, you know, like, you know, of course God needs to blow that up. But we have other illusions that don't sound so arrogant. Some of you, your illusion is, oh, my, my, life is, my life is the way it is because somebody sinned against me in the past. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt like everything that somebody sinned against you in the past. But I am saying that God hasn't given you the right to write your life story based on what someone did or didn't do to you in the past. You need to let the Holy Spirit of God and specifically the meticulous providence of the Lord Jesus Christ write the details of your story. Our, our, our myths that we tell ourselves about ourselves need to be exploded by the sovereign, gracious control of Almighty God. So when it comes to God's will, what can we say? Give you some things to take away here. So... The next section here is I'm going to tell you five. If you were to ask me what is God's will, here's five rock-solid answers. And to the, this is kind of neat. The reality is these five answers, I, when I was 16 years old, the senior pastor at the church I was attending, he got together a group of us high school guys and he gave us a lesson on what is God's will. And he challenged us to memorize these five answers. And truth in advertising, I did. And this week when I was writing this sermon, I didn't have to look them up. They were still here. My senior pastor at that church, he has since written lots of books about this and they're, they're in print in numerous places, but I didn't have to find them in print because I, I memorized them when he challenged me to, to know them and a verse for each one. How do you, what is God's will for your life? Number one, that you be saved. Saved, that you be saved. First Timothy 2, 4. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And church, we know that once we're saved, the last thing that Jesus says is, okay, now that you're saved, crawl into a hole and keep yourself safe. Jesus says, now that you're saved, this great salvation needs to go to the end of the earth. So give your money, give your time, give your gifts that the church can make more disciples. That's number one. God, what's God's will for me? That I'm saved. Number two, that I'm spirit-filled. Ephesians 5.18, this is the will of God, not that you be drunk with wine, but that you be filled with the Spirit. Spirit filling is not some weird speaking in tongues. Spirit filling is when the Word of God, and even in a wonderful way, community with the people of God just rubs the self and the sin and the flesh out of my life so that the Spirit has more and more control of my life. So that you're saved, that you're Spirit-filled. Third, that you're sanctified. To be sanctified means to be separate from sin. The verse here is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, which says, this is the will of God. That is your sanctification. And then that verse goes on to say that you abstain from sexual immorality and explain sexual immorality. And so uh, your sexual immorality is one important aspect of sanctification, what you do or what you abstain from in your body sexually. But there are many other facets of sanctification, and that's God's will for every believer, that they be saved, that they be spirit-filled, and then that they be sanctified. Number four, 
submissive. This is not an American value. America is wrong about that. Jesus is right about that, that we be submissive. First Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or governor set by him to punish evil, that we be submissive. If that's the fourth. And the fifth, this one surprises some, suffering. Suffering. Say it's God's will for me to suffer? I don't see any other conclusion from almost every book of the Bible but that in, in this life, before we get to that one, there is suffering and God's sovereign over it. Philippians 1 verse 29 speaks of suffering as a gift, which we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? Philippians 1 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also that you should suffer for his sake. You know, God wants you to be Remember the difference between falling asleep in math class and like applying the things? God wants you to be so committed to, to what's right and wrong. God wants you to be so committed to the mission of the church. God wants you to be so committed to the glorious son of God who has risen for us that you are willing to suffer. If you're not willing to suffer, to do right and avoid wrong, I don't know if you really believe what you say is right is right and what you say is wrong is wrong. If you're not willing to suffer for the mission of the church, I'm not sure I really believe that you're committed to Jesus as a disciple who's taken on what he's asked us to do. The suffering for it actually proves our commitment to it and God knows we need that testing. If you're willing to suffer for it, then you really do believe it. You really are committed to it. And to refuse to suffer... I'm not saying suffering's easy, but to refuse to suffer is to live by sight. To be willing to suffer is to live by faith. I suppose there are a lot of lessons that we can draw out of Hebrews 11, but one of the main lessons that I draw there out of Hebrews 11 is that this, this is what faith is. Every woman and man who is commended in Hebrews 11 this was their decision day one. Day one, this was their decision. My comfort, my home is on the other side of my death. My comfort and my home is not here. Therefore, it says, God, God, God was eager to call them his children because they were looking and living for a city that is yet to come. If you refuse to suffer for Christ, you are living by sight as if this world is the one that Christ promised to you right now and that is not his promise. That, is not, that does not require faith. So a willingness to, to suffer because we're exiles and our better country is coming. We're not there yet. But we wait for it in hope and in faith. If those are five answers to the question, what is God's will for my life? Let me give you four simple responses to what your responses to the will of God ought to be. I wish I could take longer for these, but I'll just throw them at you. Number one, that we pray for it. This is marvelous. This is marvelous. The, the, the guys who knew next to nothing, but who were best friends with Jesus, they said, oh, Jesus, how do we pray? This is 
this is amazing. The very first thing that Jesus says is when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is fantastic. So check my thinking here. I kind of think that Jesus believed that God is sovereign and that God will accomplish all of his purposes. And yet Jesus, the first thing he says about prayer is this, this merciful, mysterious, relational beckoning to us to say, this sovereign God, he actually wants you to get in on what he's doing. And the way you do that is by praying to him. What, what a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful invitation. I, I just think we, sometimes we crack our head open on this antimony between our will and God's sovereignty, and we should just see it as a merciful mystery where Jesus beckons us into the very will of God in our prayer life, in our prayer life. First, response to God's will that we pray for it. Secondly, that we delight in it. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. This verse is applied to our Lord himself in the New Testament, but it should apply to us that we delight to do God's will. Spiritual maturity is shown in, I no longer delight in my own wisdom, in my own plans, but I delight in the wisdom and plans of God. That's godliness. That's spiritual maturity. We pray for it, we delight in it, Third, that we humble ourselves before it. That's what James is getting at. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. That's what James is getting at when he says the opposite, verse 16, is being arrogant and boasting. So instead of being arrogant and boasting, we humble ourselves before it. So if you, if you pray for God's will, you delight in God's will, and you humble yourself before God's will, here's, here's a very practical way. If you are sitting here right now with a loved one, who lives with you or who, who you talk with almost every day, this is a very practical way that you can keep each other accountable this week whether or not you buy what we're doing here or not. Because if you delight in God's will and you humble yourself before God's will, this will put an end to our most popular pastime of grumbling and complaining. And this is, so, this, is, this, is a this is a real supernatural way that we can keep each other accountable to say, are we trusting God or not? Are we delighting in God's will or not? We pray for it. We delight to do it. We humble ourselves before it. And then fourth, this one is a longer one. It's not important that you get the exact wording, but the, the point of it is that what's our response to God's will? And it's simply that in the gospel, we trust that though I could never please God by obeying his will perfectly, Jesus did that in my place. This is the active obedience of our Savior. That Jesus, I, I wanted, now that I'm saved, I want to do God's will, but even today, even tomorrow, I'm not going to, I'm not going to walk right in step with God. I'm still me. But Jesus fulfilled God's will in our place. 
This is a precious text to me. John 6, verses 38 through 40, explain how Jesus fulfilled God's will for us. John 6, verses 38 through 40. In fact, whenever I meet with somebody who, not every time, but a lot of times when I'm meeting with somebody who struggles with assurance of their salvation, I have them memorize this verse. This is a precious verse. John 6, 38 through 40, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I would lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. Jesus says, God's will is for me to save you, and it is my delight to do God's will and save you. Jesus fulfills God's will for us. That is the only way that we're saved, by grace through faith. That's our response to God's will. You know, every, every sermon is preached for conversion. And if you, if you have not converted, if you have not been converted, if you haven't been born again, you haven't been converted and turned to Jesus, this is the day to repent of your sin Stop trying to save yourself or neglect your own salvation and be converted. Turn to Jesus. But you know, every sermon is preached for conversion to all of those who have believed in Jesus too. Because if you're here and you've believed in Jesus, just answer me this. If you've, if you've been converted and you believed in Jesus, just answer me this. It's like a piece of paper that says, turned to Jesus and a box. Are you telling me that if you check that box one time, now you're good? Ha, ha, ha. I know how you live. You need to turn to Jesus yesterday, today, tomorrow, every day of your life. Beloved, you need to turn from your anxiety to Jesus. You need to turn from your sinful habits to Jesus. You need to turn from your own plans to Jesus. You need to turn to Jesus every day, every day, every hour. And as you do, you find that Jesus, he's, he knows every sparrow, he knows every lily, every tulip, and he's so intimately involved in your life that he will be with you, you know, each step of the way. And your relationship with him will grow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us and by your very spirit, enable us now to turn to you those here who have never been converted. May today be the day of salvation. May they say, I repent of my sin. Jesus, you are Lord. You died on the cross for me. You rose again for me. Now you are my Lord and Savior. And may they be converted. And all those precious church family members who have been born again, oh, may they turn to Jesus from sin, from unbelief, from anxiety, from fear, from hopelessness, from despair. May every member turn to Jesus and so be transformed. 
Lord Jesus, give us confidence in your exhaustive and meticulous sovereignty that we might say in all things, in all things, you rule well. And knowing that you are on the throne, that it is well with us. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.